This time of year, our skin gets so dry, especially for those of us who live in cold climates. So I couldn't live without One Earth Body Care. Their Skin Fix, which is great for your entire body. It's a thick, wonderful salve. You can rub it in your hands to soften it, and it makes your skin amazing. There's a day and night facial oil, which I use every day and night, and it really, really has helped my skin. There's a sleep balm that is also a salve consistency that has lavender and other things to help you relax. Of course, my all-time favorite is their natural deodorant because I am no longer smelly. If you've got a baby, they've got a baby butt saver. The other thing that has completely transformed my hair is their shampoo and conditioner bars. They've got Skin Fix for Pets, which has helped my glue stop eating his paws all the time or nibbling on them. And of course, they also have a pet shampoo bar. Please check them out at OneEarthBodyCare.com. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. I just read the most fantastic book that I highly recommend by Wyatt Forty. It's called Those Not-So-Little Voices. And Wyatt joins us now. Hi, Wyatt. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for writing such a fantastic book and being so candid about your experience. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I want to start with uh, the introduction. Your mom writes as a parent, uh, Wyatt's story is heart-wrenching. In fact, at times it is difficult for me to read to read it to acknowledge how much he suffered silently for nine years before confiding in me. It is painful for me to think that perhaps some of my actions as a parent may have contributed to his suffering. What was that like for you when you read that or when your mom gave that to you for the book? Yeah, I mean, I asked her to write the introduction, but I didn't really tell her that I was looking for anything, you know, specific. I kind of just wanted it to be how she felt, you know, um, totally up to her discretion of what she was going to write. And then, you know, reading that part when she said that her actions as a parent might have contributed to it, that hurt, especially because of how much, you know, my mom helped me through, you know, everything that I was going through. I could honestly say that if it wasn't for my mom, I don't know if I would be here today. I mean, she was really like my rock when I needed someone. It was always my mom. You know, so just to know that she feels some responsibility on some level, you know, whether it was because of my parents' divorce or, you know, her not realizing that something was wrong earlier. So just knowing that she felt that way, that, you know, that really upset me. I bet. Now, why you you talk about that you started hearing voices when you were six. So take us back. And it, it, it sort of kind of appeared out of the blue, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like one morning I woke up and they were there, you know, there was really no, um, I mean, in terms of the voices, there was really no like warm up. It was just like one morning I woke up and they were there. I mean, obviously there were other symptoms that I went through that, you know, were a precursor to the voices, but the voice coming at six was, you know, like you said, pretty, pretty rapid onset. Yeah. And they were really, really scary. Yes. Yeah. Super, super scary. I mean, especially for a six-year-old, you know, I mean, even when I was older dealing with the voices, it was scary, but, you know, especially being so young and just coming out of nowhere like that, I, I almost didn't know like what to do with it because, you know, I was so, I was so young, you know, in the book, I talk about how in the beginning, I thought everybody heard voices, right? you know, just because I didn't really know what to make of it. And, you know, the voices said, oh, don't tell anybody, but you know, it's okay. Like nothing's wrong with you. So, you know, right. I just believe them. But as you got older, and once you thought about telling people, that's when the voices were threatening. 
Yes. I can't even imagine. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So when, um, when I first kind of, well, I realized something was wrong. Um, I would, I want to say it was in 2016. So I was 11 and my mom's sister was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And I remember we were sitting in her car, you know, outside of my aunt's apartment building because my mom and my grandma went down, my aunt lived in New York City, and they went down to her apartment because she wasn't answering anyone's calls or texts and they went to check up on her. And, you know, me and my sister waited for like, you know, five minutes. They just went in to go, you know, see my aunt. And then my mom came out and, you know, she explained to me and my sister that my aunt was hearing voices. Mm -hmm. And I remember I kind of looked at my mom and I was like, I didn't say anything. I was like, like, what's wrong with that? And then I remember my mom said, like mocking, not mocking, but like, you know, sure. in response to my look, she was like, what, like everybody doesn't hear voices. And then oh. that's kind of when I was like, well, what do you mean? And then in that moment, the voices were like, you know, if you tell anybody, we're going to kill your family. You can't say anything. I mean, a hundred percent real to me. Like there was yeah. no question of, oh, well, what if it's not real? What if it's not going to happen? You know, I thought that if I said it, that was going to happen. Like no questions asked. And exactly. So, you know, I like felt all this responsibility because, you know, I didn't want, obviously I didn't want to be hearing the voice anymore. I wanted, you know, to get help. But also I thought that if I did that, it will be at the expense of my entire family. So tell us about the society and what that meant to you. Yeah. So the society started before the actual voices, you know, like I said, the voices started at six. I want to say that I've had the thoughts about the society for pretty much as long as I can remember, you know, as far back as I can remember. And I, I don't know really how it came about, but I thought that there was a society of people, you know, random people. And, you know, my dad was, I thought, part of the society. And I thought this society was like a group that would meet and their main goal was to gather information on me and ultimately kill me. And, you know, this was, like I said, predates the voices Um, But I thought that there were cameras like all over my house. Like I remember when I was a kid, I would be in my bedroom and I would be like feeling the walls to see if there was like any unevenness or, you know, like when I would be out, you know, I would think, oh, what if that person's part of the society? And then when the voices started, you know, if I would be out in public, they would say, oh, look at that person, you know, they're one of them. And whenever the voices would say they're one of them, that meant that they were a part of the society. And this got a lot worse when I started taking the train down to high school, my freshman year of high school, Um, you know, just because I was on the train, like there was really no way to get off the train when it was moving. And I remember I would be sitting in the train seat and I would hear the voices, oh, look, they're one of them. They're all one of them. And I used to think that the people in the society would have like these wireless earpieces that they'd be wearing. And like, I couldn't see them, obviously. So I didn't know. And the only way that I would know if someone was part of the society was if the voices would tell me. And then, you know, when it got really bad, I would be scared that the society was coming for me. And, you know, I remember there were times when I would hide in my mom's closet and, you know, shut the door, turn off lights because there was no windows or other doors in her closet. And I would just sit in her closet because I thought that that was the only place that I was safe from the society. I think one of the most heartbreaking things, too, is you thought your dad 
was part of the society. Yeah. Um, You know, that was, I remember there was one, um, one instance, it's kind of just happened randomly, but this was right after I got out of the hospital the first time. And I remember there was the Christmas boutique, which is like a, like a Christmas sale that went on my middle school. And you know, everybody knew that I was scared of my dad, you know, like at this point, like I didn't want to be in the same room as him. I didn't want to talk to him. I couldn't even like look at him. You know, I remember the first time I was in the hospital again, my dad came to visit me and like, I, I wouldn't look at him. And, you know, I went up to one of the nurses and I was like, you have to get him out of here. Like, you know, he has to leave. Um, and anyway, back to the Christmas boutique, um, everybody knew I was scared of my dad. So they didn't, my mom was like, okay, just like, you know, don't come to the house. And um, I remember he had to use the bathroom at our house and my mom was like, okay, let's go. And then, you know, he'll use the bathroom later. And as we were pulling out of our driveway, I, cause we live on a cul-de-sac and I looked up the road and I saw his car there and that that really freaked me out. You know, I got really, really scared after that. I mean, obviously in hindsight, I know he didn't want me to see his car, but you know, in that moment, me seeing his car, I thought that he was there spying on me. You know, one of the things that you write about in the book is you talk about your parents' divorce and you say that, you know, wondering about the role that could play in the voices, especially because the voices were a man and a woman who fought a lot. Yeah. It was, um, like, I mean, I know I talk about in that chapter, like, specific instances how, like, the way that the man and the woman would fight right. was almost, like, exactly the way that my parents mm-hmm. fight. Yeah. You know, yeah, it was shockingly similar. Um, you know, and I think that was, um, I don't want to say one of the harder parts, but just one of the more upsetting parts that wasn't scary you know just because i remember like when my parents would fight you know me and my sister used to feel like really scared and not scared just like upset that they were fighting sure. so, much. so you know to have that going on in real life and then also in my head was you know one of the parts that just upset me the most yeah that makes a lot of sense now eventually you were diagnosed with something called AIWS or Alice in Wonderland syndrome. I've never heard of that. I want people to get the book, but tell us a little bit about how you were able to get that diagnosis because you were going to have to open up about some of this, right? In order to get, yeah. So I was diagnosed with Alice in Wonderland syndrome in 2019. So, you know, this, obviously I was hearing the voices, but this was before anybody knew about the voices. Um, okay. Yeah. So this, the Alzheimer's syndrome was definitely very different from, you know, the voices or anything else that was going on that, you know, was like related to my psychosis in any way. Um, the Alzheimer's syndrome was just more weird. Um, you know, it didn't, it didn't really scare me. Um, and the voices would never say anything, you know, about when I would have an episode of Alice in Wonderland syndrome. What is it exactly? Yeah, so it's a neurological um, disorder. It's not a mental illness. Um, you know, there's no treatment for it. It usually just subsides with age. You know, I don't, I don't experience it anymore. Um, really, the only thing that it would do is make, like, distort your perception of objects. 
like, you know, I could, I remember I was like sitting in class and there was like a clock on the wall, like one of those regular round school clocks. And it looked like it took up like half of the wall. Oh, wow. And then, yeah. And then um, I remember the first time that I ever experienced it, um, I was in the nail salon. I was waiting for my mom and sister to get their nails done, you know, and I was just like sitting in one of the chairs, like reading a magazine. And I remember I looked at my arms and they looked like they were like feet long and like they wouldn't go back to normal size. And like, I kept like scratching my arms and like pulling my arms to like see if they were really that long. And Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, when I got in the car with my mom, she saw my arms and they were like all red and scratched. And she was like, what happened? And I told her what happened. And, you know, she was like, okay, maybe it's just, you know, a bad day or whatever. You know, she didn't want to, like, make too much of a big deal out of it. If sure. it not. Um, but then it kept happening. And then I went to see a neurologist. And, you know, I thought about saying something about the voices. Um, I really, I really did. Because I feel like that was kind of my first opportunity. You know, if I was there, I was at the doctor's, you know. Right. Um but I walked into her office and, you know, she, she wasn't there yet. Like the nurse or the physician's assistant, you know, came in, did all like mm-hmm. the questions and they were like, you know, okay, the doctor will be in in a couple minutes. And I remember the voices are like, you know, if you say anything about us, you know, what's going to happen. And then like, I was, I didn't say anything, obviously. Um, and, you know, we were sitting there still waiting and then I was like playing on my phone and my mom was sitting in the chair right next to me. And I heard the voices. They were like, oh, is your mom okay? You know, I hope she's okay. I hope nothing's wrong. You know, and I heard like people walking down the hallway, like of the doctor's office. And they were like, oh, they're coming for her. They're waiting outside. You better not say anything. And then I never said anything about the voices at that doctor's appointment, just the Alice in Wonderland symptoms. You know, one of the other horrific things you had to go through was what it did to your relationship with food. You write, as the voices got severely worse, my eating was also significantly impacted. Whenever I tried to eat, they said they would kill my mom. Yeah. It, um, obviously in hindsight, I mean, in hindsight, a lot of things that I went through don't make sense, you know, like doesn't make sense how it would actually happen, why I would believe it. But yeah, in, in the moment, I thought that if I ate anything, they would kill her just because I was eating, um, you know, and in the beginning, um, I mean, well, when I talk about like the beginning, I mean, after I told, you know, my mom that I was hearing the voices, um, I, the voices told me I couldn't eat, but there were times when I could like, I would compromise with the voices. I'd be like, okay, I can only have half of my dinner. And like oh. that, like I'll only eat half. And that's kind of how my mom knew that something was wrong because I would eat like exactly half of my dinner and that was it. Um, you know, but then when it got worse, I, I wasn't eating at all. I mean, in the morning, I would just say that I was too tired to eat and I didn't have anything at lunch. Um, at lunch, the voices would tell me to buy lunch so that my mom didn't think anything was wrong. You know, she would see the the charge on my account and then right. throw it out. Um, so I would like buy a sandwich or buy pizza and I would throw the whole thing out. Um, and then at dinner, I would say that I was too busy studying. So I didn't eat dinner. And, you know, maybe 
from, I would say, September to November of my freshman year, the most I would eat a day was like maybe a handful of chips. And, you know, I lost like, I would say when I started high school, I was about 180 pounds. And after those three months, I was like 145 pounds. Oh my God. Your mother must have. Yeah. Did she suspect you had an eating disorder? Yeah. That's when, that's when everybody knew, okay, something, something's, something's wrong with Wyatt. Yeah. Um, oh, um, you know, but then, you know, then I went to the hospital, started medication. Right. And then this was like about a year later, the issues with the food came back again. But this time, like I wasn't able to compromise with the voices. Like, you know, they didn't want me to eat at all you know again the same thing if you eat will kill your mom if you eat will kill your sister and then they used to tell me that the food was poison but they told me that it was a specific poison that could only kill me so you know if my mom would take a bite of it first it wouldn't matter because the poison couldn't kill her and you know obviously not eating all day you know i got hungry so sometimes i would eat like a little bit and just try to eat like as fast as i could but if I ate a little bit, the voices would like scream at me until I made myself throw up. And, you know, when I would eat, I remember I would go up to my room and I'd make myself throw up. And as I was like making myself throw up, the voices would make me throw up again and again. And they were like, okay, throw up again. You have to get it all out of your stomach, throw up again. And I mean, there were times when I would throw up like four times in a row until they told me, okay, you can stop. I'm so glad again that you're here and you're sharing this story because you never know who's out there, who's listening, who's struggling. Yeah. Now, so once you opened up to the doctors about the voices, instead of saying you've been hearing them for what, 10 years at that point, you said you'd only yeah. been hearing them for three months. Right. And the whole time the voices are yelling at you to shut the F up, right? Well, yes. But you, I'm proud of you. You told. And and just give us, I want people to get the book. Again, those not so little voices. Just give us a little bit about your journey with different doctors, different therapies, different medications. Yeah. So the first time that I ever, well, okay, let me backtrack. Um, the first time I ever told anyone about the voices, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to. Um, it's, it sounds like I made it up, but it's really, this is 100% the truth. Um, it was one day after school and, you know, this is when everybody had suspected, this is when everyone really suspected, okay, something's wrong with Wyatt. You know, they saw that I lost so much weight. I mean, I was super, super skinny. Um, I wasn't acting like myself, you know, my guidance counselor called my mom and she was like, I think Wyatt needs to talk to the school psychologist. Um, you know, everybody had kind of had their suspicions that something was wrong. Um, and I was walking with one of my friends and it just, it just came out of my mouth. The voices are really annoying me today. And, you know, he kind of looked at me and I, I, I think I actually stared at him with my mouth wide open. Like I couldn't believe I just said that. And, you know, I feel like if it would have been anyone else, I don't know if my mom would have found out, but the specific friend that I told his mom and my mom, were best friends since they went to middle school. Mm-hmm. So I knew that he was going to tell his mom who was going to tell my mom. And 
you know, he was like, well, if you don't tell your mom, I'm going to tell mom, my mom, and I'm going to make her tell your mom. So that's kind of how it came about of me telling my mom. And then, you know, when I told my mom, um, she, then I remember the next day it was veterans day and, um, I went to her office with her and, you know, she was calling a bunch of different hospitals and doctors, you know, not really sure what to do. Um, and then after making a couple calls, they told her to bring me to the emergency room. And, you know, when we went to the emergency room, I, you know, I told the, the doctor my symptoms, you know, a little bit. And, you know, at this point, both me and my mom kind of thought that they were maybe just going to like give me medicine and, you know, that was going to be it. But neither of us really thought that they were going to keep me and, you know, not let me go. Um, but, you know, that's what ended up happening. And then that night I was admitted to the hospital, you know, the behavioral unit. And that was the first time that I ever saw a real doctor, you know, um, yeah, who was going to treat me. And in the hospital, um, I, I want to choose my words carefully because I'm not going to say the doctors were bad because sure. they, they were good, but I think they, they kind of just wanted to get kids out, mm-hmm. you know, and like get, yeah. put them on a medicine and then, you know, right. let them, um, let them be seen by like a doctor outpatient. Yeah. And, you know, I remember both because I, I was hospitalized twice. And, um, you know, at both times that I was in the hospital, I wasn't really taking my medicine. Um, you know, I remember that because they would give you the pills at the end of the night. And I would either like hide them under my jawline or like mm. half swallow the pill. Yeah. So that when they would look in your mouth, they wouldn't see it. And then when you walked away, cough the pill up and flush it down the toilet. Um, so I didn't really get like the right treatment in the hospitals. You know, it wasn't until after the fact when I started seeing other doctors that, you know, I was kind of like set on the right path. Right. Um, and that it didn't take me a very long time actually to find the psychiatrist that I use right now. Um, I went to one psychiatrist right after the hospital, very briefly. I think I only saw her like two times. Um, and, you know, she kind of said that she didn't think she had the resources to, um, to treat me properly. So, you know, that she would treat me in the interim, but that I should look for more of a specialist. And then one of my close friends from middle school, his dad is a doctor mm-hmm. and he ultimately gave us the contact information for the psychiatrist that I use right now. And he's, you know, he's excellent. You know, oh, he good. really, um, I mean, I think my case, um, my mental illness was more treatment resistant. I mean, I tried probably upwards of seven different antipsychotics and none of them worked. Um, until we finally found the right medication that worked for me. My goodness. Now I know when you were in the hospital both times, I think at first, the first time you lied and said you stopped hearing voices. It was that yeah. the second time as well. Cause you just yeah. want to get the hell out of there. Yes. Yeah. I remember the first time, um, that I was in the hospital, I think I took one pill the first night. And then I woke up the next morning and the voices are like, you know, you have to get out of here. Tell them you're feeling better. Tell them that the voices are gone. And that's what I did. And um, I was out. I think I was admitted Monday. I was out Friday morning. Wow. Um, 
so yeah, um, both both times though that I was in the hospital, I lied about the voices going away. Yeah, and then eventually they did. And again, I don't want to give away too much, but there was something that I thought was so interesting when you talked about the voices. Uh, quote, when I realized the voices were gone, I felt like I should have been happy and excited, but I wasn't. I had always dreamt of the voice voices going away. And when I picture myself after realizing that they had, I thought I'd be overjoyed. But that wasn't the reality. <clears throat> the voices had been with me for almost 10 years at the time that they were with me from age six to two months before my 16th birthday is very formative. I felt like I didn't know who I was without them. I also felt a sense of loss. And in a weird way, I almost wanted them back. That's really powerful. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was not what I expected at all when the voices went away. You know, like I said, you know, in the quote you read, I wanted them, you know, to go away for so long. I remember, you know, every night I would like stay up and, you know, it's over the course of what happened, like, you know, my faithfulness or like religious perspective, it definitely changed um, a Mm -hmm. little bit, but I remember that I would stay up every night, like praying, just like, please let them go away. Please let them go away. And then, you know, like I said, I dreamt of the day that they would go away, you know, that I didn't have to deal with like the abuse every single day that I could eat, that I could, you know, not, not be scared every day. But then when they went away, it just, I didn't really feel like myself just like ever since I was six, like I always had some kind of noise going on in my head, you know, talking or even though I didn't actually see the voices, you know, I mean, obviously there were times when I did have the visual hallucinations, but you know, for most of it, it was just the voices, but it always felt like I had someone with me. Um, and when the voices went away, I felt weirdly alone. Mm, yeah. And I think you, so from an outside perspective, you would probably expect the voices to, that I would characterize the voices as mean, you know, because of all the stuff they would say to me, but I probably wouldn't characterize them as mean. At least that wouldn't be my first characterization of them. My first characterization of them would actually be more. I mean, their tone, I would say pleasant and, you know, more, hmm, more like a friend, um, you know, a very, very mean and abusive friend, um, yeah. you know, especially because everything that I went through, you know, with my parents' divorce, like, you know, when my parents first got divorced, I was six and my sister was four. So, you know, most of the time when my parents would be fighting, you know, I remember me and my sister would sit in my mom's bed and, you know, we would watch TV like cartoons or whatever. And I would always make sure she fell asleep. And then, you know, after she fell asleep, I would be awake and um, I could hear my parents fighting. You know, they would usually go into a different room, but I could still hear them. Yeah. And, you know, the only way that I could block that out and not have that be the thing I was listening to was listening to the voices. And, you know, so in a way they helped me a little bit through that. Right. So, you know, I think just the loss of that made me almost want them back a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too, because you talk about that the months following the voices going away, 
You write, quote, the focus of my therapy shifted from dealing with the voices to helping me realize who I was without them and also why I didn't need them anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a personal, like after somebody deals with something like that, I think there's kind of a decision to be made. Um, And one, you know, you could either kind of take the route that I took where, you know, taking what you went through and like your experiences and, you know, using it for something, Um, you know, like, for example, I wrote my book, you know, now I do these interviews, um, you know, trying to help other people. And I think that's really been like a great experience for me, just, you know, taking probably like the worst thing that ever happened to me and using it for good. And I think that helped me a lot realize who I was without the voices and, you know, realizing that like, Hey, I'm my, my own person, you know, without right. these voices. But on the other hand, I think there's also a choice where you could take what happened to you, put it in the past and leave it there. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. You know, I think especially when I first, you know, stopped hearing the voices, you know, you would hear about all of these people who, you know, wrote books. Like, you know, I remember um, when I was first in the hospital, the, the doctor showed me a book called the center cannot hold by Ellen Sachs. Um, Mm. You know, I read the book. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. Um, And, you know, she has schizophrenia. She's a law professor at Yale. And, you know, I think there was, I don't want to say a pressure, but I wanted to do something like that. I feel like, okay, you know, after I've been through this, like I have to help other people. Um, But I don't think that should necessarily be the pressure on everyone. You know, like I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with discovering who you are without the voices outside of the voices, you know, just as Mm -hmm. a person without having to relive that, you know, if you don't want. Yeah, right. You know, one of the things that I love about the book as well is that you give some great tips at the end. And before I get to that, did they ever give you a diagnosis? So, I mean, especially with mental illness, it's just, it's really hard because there's no like definitive diagnostic test that could say, you know, hey, this is what you have. It's really all based on what the patient says. And especially when you're going through you know, something like that, it's hard to fully articulate what's happening to you. Um, But the first time I saw a doctor, they diagnosed you with schizophrenia. Then the other doctor I went to, they said schizophrenia. Then I went to the, my psychiatrist now, and he said, he doesn't necessarily know if it's schizophrenia. You know, he said, I definitely have like transient symptoms of psychosis, but he also thinks that there's a big mood component to my disorder as well. Um, you know, which would be something more the, more along the lines of schizoaffective disorder. Yeah. I was going to um, ask about that. Yeah. But I never really got a definitive diagnosis. And, you know, honestly, at this point, it doesn't really matter to me all that much. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, usually when people ask, I will just say schizophrenia, just, you know, for like right. ease sake, just because, you know, a lot of the symptoms are the same and, you know, if someone's just like asking, I don't really have to get into like all sure. of the details. So I usually will just say schizophrenia, but I never got like a definitive diagnosis. 
Right. There's so much stigma, especially with schizophrenia, and it just breaks my heart. There's so much misunderstanding about that. So again, I'm glad you're talking about it. And then I have a friend who has, um, what is it, schizoaffective disorder? Yeah. And and then I just get so annoyed with the slang of like, oh, that guy's psycho or that guy's, you know, I just want, I get, people don't say that. It's not okay. Yeah, don't say I, that person. I mean, I, I feel so OCD. Don't say that if you don't have, you don't under, you know, I live yeah. with people with mental illness. I know how tough it is. My closest friends all have mental illness, different ones. So I've had to learn a lot and it's just so insensitive. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of the reason um, why I wrote the book, you know, is just... I mean, well, the book didn't start out originally as a book, you know, it was kind of just like journal entries of like me, you know, just getting down my thoughts on paper. Um, But when I decided that I actually wanted to make it into a book, it was because I was so frustrated that like nobody really understood what I was going through. And, you know, I've had like, Uh, Not my close friends, but like people say to me, oh, well, like, you know, schizophrenia would be like, you know, a homeless person on the street talking to themselves. And I mean, while that might be true, that's not obviously always the case. Right. And, you know, I think people kind of just have this, like you said, stigma or like association. That's not true. I would Mm -hmm. say that's true more of the times. Right. And, you know, so I just wanted to kind of give something of like, you know, well, look, this is what it looks like for me. And, you know, someone who goes to high school, goes to college, you know, like it's not always that. And I think there's also like a stigma that if you're diagnosed with something like that, that you can't do as much as other people can do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I also kind of wanted to write this book to show, well, that's not true either, you know? Yeah. How old are you now, Wyatt? I'm 18. I wrote the book from 14 to 17. And how long have you been not hearing the voices since 2021 so about two and a half years okay you know i do want to jump into the tips because these were so incredibly helpful and especially like i said for someone like me who i have a lot of people in my life i think it's really important so one of the things that helped you is you would say to yourself why your brain just doesn't realize that it's your own voice and that you would say that to yourself over and over and that you found that helpful. You also said that strenuous physical activity, such as running is helpful, distracting yourself from the voices, whether by listening to music, humming or singing. And then you had tips on dealing with um, delusions, visual hallucinations. Talk to us a little bit about those. Yeah. So I think definitely for the voices, you know, like you said, the thing about telling yourself, well, this is just your brain, you know, doing your, like presenting your own internal thoughts in a way that you actually audibly hear. You know, I think that obviously these tips are more for people in recovery because, you know, when you're in it, like you just, you just need professional help. There's really nothing else. Right. Do for you. You know, that's paramount at that point. Yeah. You know, but then after you start receiving treatment, um, like I remember there would be things that the voices would tell me that I knew I didn't tell other people. Right. Like just inner thoughts that I had. And I would think, you know, oh my God, they know everything about me. But, you know, 
if you say, okay, this is just your brain, you know, presenting your internal thoughts in a different way, that sort of helps it make sense. Right. And I think that's a big part of it because a lot of things that I and other people go through don't make sense. And so, you know, sort of starting to make sense of it. And like, you know, I'm more of like a, a visual learner, if you know what I mean. So trying to like piece it out in like a visual way of saying, okay, well, this is why this is happening. And this right. is why this is happening can sort of help calm, you know, any scared feelings that you might have or uncertain feelings that you might have. Right. Um, you know, and then I add the part about physical activity because this is something that I struggled with a lot. Um, only because when it first started happening, you know, we, I'm not when it first started happening. When I first started seeing doctors, you know, all of them would tell me, you have to do physical activity, you have to do physical activity. And I remember that I would get so mad, you know, I would feel like they weren't taking me seriously. Like, you know, I'm having all of these psychotic symptoms. I can't eat, you know, I'm having voices that I hear all day and you're telling me to run. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. Like, give me a break. Just, it sounded like they were deminimizing what was happening. Right. And so for a long time, I didn't do it. Um, but then when I actually started doing it, there are like, very, very real and significant benefits from doing it. And, you know, I felt that that was important to incorporate in my book because, mm -hmm. you know, it's different to hear it from a doctor right. um, as opposed to hearing it from someone who goes through the same things as you and I'm telling you this actually works, you right. know? Um, yeah, I think that was also like another part of why I wrote the book is, especially for kids, there was just not a lot of resources, you know, because especially like disorders like schizophrenia, they don't usually present until a little bit later in life. Mm -hmm. So me being 14, you know, and just recently getting this diagnosis, you know, there was very close to nothing out there for kids my age. And, you know, I thought that it was really important that, you know, even if my book couldn't directly help me, that if I could even help one kid, you know, realize they're not alone or like, you know, like you said, in this part of the book, give them tips of how to deal with this. Well, you know, then all the work I put into this book is worth it. Absolutely. This is this thing was so important for me in particular. If you are slowly showing a person evidence that contradiction or delusions or that contradict their delusions and they begin to argue with you, stop the conversation. I'll repeat it again because of how important it is. Do not fight with someone experiencing mental illness. So my closest friend is anorexic mm -hmm. and I argue with her all the time that she's not fat. And I'm like, shit, I shouldn't do that. Like I read that. And I was like, oh, crap. But I get so annoyed. It makes yeah. me insane. I know I shouldn't say that. See, I just took that. Don't say it makes you insane because it's not true. It makes me so angry because I feel like if I keep telling her that she's not fat, then she'll believe me. But it's a mental illness. It doesn't work like that. So what would you say in that situation? Because anorexia is a mental illness. Right, like, exactly. What do you say if they keep going on about how fat they are? Yeah. So I think, you know, like I said, if you want to like slowly and she's like, oh, hey, you know, you're not fat or like even with like a other type of delusion. Oh, you know, like, you know, there's no one there, you know, they've been telling you they're going to come and kill you for 10 years and it never happened, you know? Right. And if they start 
arguing with you, you know, because especially I think it's misunderstood a little bit because when you're arguing, you may come across as well, the person with mental illness may come across as like hostile and aggressive and argumentative, but really they're scared. Right. And, you know, I remember like when I would argue with my mom about this society, I wasn't actually mad. You know, I wasn't trying to be argumentative. I was just scared. And the more you start like arguing with someone else, like the more upset you're going to get and the more I get so upset. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I think I think an important thing to understand from someone else's perspective is that when you're fighting with that person, like you're not really fighting with your relative or your loved one or your kid, you know, that's not them, you know, so you're not going to be able to get through to them. Like it's, it's not going to happen. And, you know, if you're in a situation where, you know, you're talking about it and, you know, an argument starts, I honestly think the best thing to do is just take a breath and walk away from the conversation. Cause you know, once it starts becoming an argument or, you know, like argumentative or hostile in any way, once that happens, there's no other good that's going to come from the conversation. Yeah. That's going to be frustrating for you, frustrating for the other person. And, you know, I feel like when someone's going through something like that, they just need more like support and love from their family members than, you know, obviously when you argue with them, you mean well, you know, you're trying to help them, but it's not like 99% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) So frustrating. Yes. Uh, Well, you know what? The book is absolutely fantastic. Again, those not so little voices. Is there anything that we didn't touch on today that you were hoping that we would talk about? I just don't want to give too much of the book away. (laughs) No, 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 I agree. Um, No, I mean, I think, I think the only thing other that I would talk about is especially for like a mental illness like schizophrenia or like any other kind of mental illness is that once you start receiving treatment and, you know, even after your symptoms have subsided, like, you know, when I stopped hearing the voices, um, you know, you have to remember that although your symptoms are gone, like there's always going to be things that you'll struggle with. You know, I mean, like specifically for me, even after um, the voices went away, like Mm -hmm. even now, I still get paranoid a lot. You know, like if I'm in a public setting and, you know, especially I find like when I'm nervous, like if I'm in a public setting, I'll think that people are talking about me, you Mm -hmm. know, I think Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. once you get treatment for mental illness, like it's important to kind of like build a community of people who understand you, you know, whether it's not even necessarily like doctors or therapists, just like people who you can talk to, you know, and be like, Hey, I'm struggling right now, you know? Um, I think people are talking about me, you know, obviously now that I'm on medication and, you know, going to therapy, I can convince myself and say, okay, you know, this isn't true. You're just overwhelmed. But yeah, I think that building like a community is really, really important. Yeah, that is such good advice. And I actually did want to ask you, I know you wrote in the book that uh, cognitive behavioral, behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy was helpful. Is that something that you're still doing? Yes. Yeah. You know, I see my therapist like once a week, um, you know, and 
really in the therapy sessions, like I think it's not, I mean, it is talk therapy to some degree, but it's also just building skills that you can use for the rest of your life, you know, and like when you might be like overwhelmed or struggling, just like ways to kind of like ground yourself. And that's also like, you know, something else I talk about in the book is like, you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious or anything about, you know, any kind of mental illness, like grounding techniques are super important. Like, you know, I'll feel like if I'm in public, right. And I think people are talking about me just like naming some things that are in reality. Like, you know, if I'm sitting at my desk, I'll be like, okay, you know, my walls are blue and you know, this is my desk. It feels like this, you know, just like reminding yourself of things that are in reality. Yes. That is so helpful. Well, Wyatt, again, the book is those not so little voices. Wyatt Forte. W-Y-A-T-T-F-O-R-T-E. How do we find your fantastic book? It's on Amazon. It's available on Amazon. And it's also available on the Barnes & Noble website. Oh, good. Wyatt, I'm so glad you came on Health Power. This means a lot to me. It really does. It's been fabulous. And he was very patient, everyone. I had a busy summer and it took a long time. I'm thinking, oh my God, we were in touch so long ago. I can't believe it's November Anyway, everybody keep coming back to Health Power. Uh, Great news. There's going to be a show Monday through Friday, Monday, Thursday, and Friday. I'll be highlighting an article from Naturally Savvy, about five to 10 minute interviews, giving you some great healthy living information. Tuesday, we have a guest. And on Wednesdays, I've got Cooking with Kayla, the wonderful Capiello, who will be sharing recipes and more. So great of you subscribe and keep coming back to Health Power. Oh, and don't forget to check out OneEarthBodyCare.com. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.